Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena, who's joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, who's a licensed clinical psychologist, to contextualize and offer some professional insight at the start and end of the conversation with my featured guest, Shane LaPointe, who's a health instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy. This episode is about the experience of growing up in a working class family and how those circumstances can shape character. Zone out while we discuss. Sahoy in the heezy, fashizy. <laughs> I tried to come up with a rhyme, but I'm feeling kind of wheezy. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Stena, that may be a whole different type of uh, podcast. You got to do a little freestyle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been working Gosh. on my freestyling on the low. I love it. I love it. And if you invite me to that, um, I'll share with you that... Um, a friend of mine in graduate school gave me a nickname and he would call me Shahizel. <laughs> oh, what? Shahizel? Okay. All right. That, <laughs> that moniker may now follow you at PEA. Somebody oh, might no. start referring to you as such. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe I should not have shared that. You done messed up. <laughs> Especially with an audience listening to this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so before we uh, started recording here, you and I were talking about my recent trip to New Orleans. And prior to that, I was in Ocean City, Maryland with the family. And prior to that, I was in Miami for a little bit visiting my uncle. And so I've been doing quite a bit of traveling lately, uh, mostly on my own dime. And I'm at a different point in my life now where I could travel a little bit when I was younger. I didn't get to do that sort of thing with my uh, family, my working class parents. Um, We weren't broke by any means, but vacation for us was my going to Montreal for a few months to spend time with my father's family, or we would go to New York City or Providence. I didn't start traveling until I graduated from college and worked in college admissions. What about you? Things changed. Um, When I was living in Taiwan with my family, so age 10 and under, we traveled a lot as a family. Um, We had the means to do so. We travel within Asia. I remember going to Tokyo Disney, and that was a big treat, you know, as a young child. There are photos of us in Japan and photos of us in different parts of Taiwan. We traveled quite a bit. Um, our, our, Our money situation was different in Taiwan. Um, and then things shifted uh, when my father decided that it was time to leave and there were circumstances that led to that, in addition to wanting a better educational opportunities for us kids, our money situation was very, very different in the United States. Uh, so traveling was, I, I traveled really when I left for graduate school. Um, so we didn't travel much for what, 10 to 
age 10 to 20. So for 10 years, yeah. I didn't really travel and graduate school afforded me the opportunities to travel because I would go to conferences yeah. and it would be paid for by my scholarship. And it took me to places like Hawaii and New Orleans and, um, you know, St. Louis and DC and Boston and LA, all these big places that people hold conferences. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to go if it wasn't because of graduate school and them paying for it. Yeah. Having that um, extra money to go on vacation and, and, and pay for amusement parks and, and other cultural sites, it, it just wasn't part of my experience growing up. And so I try to give that to my kids. And so I actually have a situation right now that is so puzzling to me. So we ask our 17-year-old if she wants to join us on a trip in early August to Orlando to stay at a resort for a few days. And tell me why she declines it. I'm like, hold on, what? She's like, yeah, we're just going to go hang out at a resort. That sounds boring. And I'm looking at her like, yo, are you kidding me? And to her, because she's been on vacation every summer, um, she's already been on vacation this year to Ocean City. It's like, yeah, you know, just get on a plane and go somewhere and see a new place. I, yeah, I don't know. I'd rather just stay back and go to work. And it's just mind boggling to me. <laughs> and it actually concerns me that my kids are not going to experience the struggle that I had growing up. And maybe struggle is a strong word, but the experiences I had that have shape the person that I am. And so my question to you is, mm. you know, the episode that we're uh, about to discuss is about a, a person, a colleague who uh, grew up in a working class family. And um, she talks a little bit about her experiences. And so my question to you is, does growing up in a low socioeconomic situation, is it necessarily a situation that will break somebody or can it make a person? Hmm. Well, I hesitate to give kind of a black and white answer. I think it depends on the individual, but I will say in my personal experience and many experiences that I've been able to um, privy, be privy to, I think it makes the person. I, I think those early struggles teach you something about not taking things for granted and I think you and I connect in this way, growing up, watching what our parents had to do to make things work, I think gives us a different appreciation for our parents, yeah, a yeah. different respect for our parents that I don't hear sometimes from the more privileged. Um, it's a, it can be a different experience. So I tend to say that it's I'm who I am today because of those struggles, because I know what it's like to not have. And at what point in your life did you realize that your circumstances made you a better person? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I ask really good questions. I know. And I had to think for a minute. Um, you know, earlier you asked me, when did I start traveling? And it was because of graduate school. Yeah. And I remember going on this, these trips, you know, D.C. and New Orleans and St. Louis and being very aware that other members of my family were probably never going to get to see these cities. Yeah. And that only reason why I was getting to go is because of these scholarships. And I think it was then that I really realized I don't take things for granted and that these trips are blessings and I'm only going because I have these opportunities. 
And I would soak it up and live it up and buy something to send home, you know, so that maybe in some ways they get to experience some of it. Um, and this may be oversharing, but, you know, even now, my father has passed many, many years ago. And whenever I go on a trip, you know, I pray to him every morning. I'm like, yeah, come with me. You know, mm. let's go. Mm, you yeah. know, and so I really take parts with him with me to say, like, here's what I get to see. And I get to see this because of what you've done. Yeah. Uh, and you can't physically see it for yourself, but you can see it through me. So I think it's all those experiences that I just really, really have always appreciated that uh, I didn't just, this one just hand it to me. Right. That's These, beautiful. That's yeah. really beautiful. That's a beautiful story. I'm sorry. I feel like I cut you off. No, no, that's okay. You did it. I had a moment there because you brought up your father and I was thinking about mine and I had to pause for a little bit. Uh, my bad. So um, one of the things I do, my mom is still living. Um, when I travel, I always bring her back a mug from where I visited. And to answer my own question to you regarding at what point I learned to appreciate what I experienced or my experiences growing up, um, I would say the same thing. I would say on the back end, when I started traveling for work, um, working in admissions, and by the way, to the young folks who might be listening to this episode, uh, working in college admissions allows you to visit places that um, you may have never had on your radar. Um, if you grew up poor, um, they pay for you to travel everywhere. And so a great first job to have out of college. But yeah, I always get my mom a mug and I got to see so many places traveling for work. And I, I really appreciated that. And so for me, it was a goal when I became a parent to make sure that every summer, as long as I had the means that I could take my children somewhere. And here I am now wondering, how do I make sure they appreciate that? Because this isn't the norm for everybody. And mind you, I know that there are other people who are going on more elaborate vacations. Like I take them to Myrtle Beach in Orlando, and they haven't been off this continent. When I ask some of my advisees where they visit, <laughs> some I'm of like, the places Yo, let me... Let me pull yeah. out my cell phone. I need to Google that. <laughs> Same. Some of the times the kids are saying, oh, I went this and that. I didn't even know those places existed. Nor could I even pronounce half the places that they were going. <laughs> yep. yep. True that. True that. And so uh, if you could do it all over again, would you trade the experiences you had growing up for something different? No, I don't. And I think if I would, if I were to say I did, that would be so disrespectful for my parents, but I don't, I, I think all of the journey, all the different parts of our journey, the highs and the low are all there for a reason. Um, my only regret is I wish my parents didn't have to struggle so much. Yeah. You know, I wish that they had an easier time. I wish that my father was alive a little longer so I can take him on trips, like physically. Um, you know, there are those regrets that like, Oh gosh, there's more that I wanted them to experience and there's less struggle that I wish that they had to make this all happen. Um, but for my own personal journey, I'm thankful for all of it. Yeah. I hear that. I can totally relate. Yeah. Thank you for joining me, Ms. LaPointe. How are you doing today? I am awesome. Thank you, Dean Camillus, for inviting me in. So on the podcast, I'm Stena. I'm not Dean Camillus or Hadley. I am Stena. Okay. 
Hello, Stena. I'm really excited <laughs> to be here. Okay, so um, I bring folks on the podcast to talk about their identity. And so let's start with the question of how do you identify? I identify as a white, cisgendered, heterosexual uh, woman. Uh, I think that covers that part, but mostly I think of myself as a woman, athlete, uh, mom, daughter, sister, friend. I'm still trying to shake off former identities, right? Like, because I used to be the kid who lived in government housing, and I used to be the kid who uh, didn't have any money, didn't do anything. (laughs) Does that ever leave you? I mean, that's one of the things we have in common, because I lived in government housing at some point, and um, when my kids start talking about, I want to go to Disney, I want to go to this restaurant, and I'm like, okay, let's talk, let's, Let's talk a little bit more about this privilege you're feeling that we could just get up and go to restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we share that in common. Continue. Um, so I would say I like I I think this decade of my life, and I'm in, you know, the fourth, maybe fifth one here already. Uh, and I, I would say it's a lot of unpacking what I thought I was before and understanding sort of where where the privilege is now, because before I was only focused on the struggle. Mm. Um, And so now that I've created more stability and so on and so forth, I think um, I'm in a different place with my identities. And taking on that that parent title, man, like I just don't want a kid, my own kid or any kid that I teach to doubt for a second that... um, they need to love themselves wholly and completely as they are. And like, how do I help do that? How do I help nurture that? Okay. So now I'm going back to the matter of you growing up poor, living in government housing. Um, You were also the first in your family to go to college or to graduate from college. My parents were divorced very young um, and like what I remember uh, from my childhood is my biological father kept my mother in beater cars. <laughs> like, you know, the hoopties. Yeah, exactly. They don't have hoopties anymore. Like, so, you know, I have this long list of um, ad- adventures where like I could sit in the back of one of them and lift up the floorboards and see the road go by and those types of like, you know, I was popping the clutch so we could get it going down the hill where my mom pushed it, right? Like it was a lot of that. So hold on. Did you ever have the kind of cars where if you sat in it long enough and you got out, you felt a little dizzy because of the fumes, the 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 gas fumes? Did you there's, have one of those? There's no way that I didn't. There's yeah. no way that I didn't. Um <laughs> because I'm- yeah, that's uh, that was a lot of like, you know, there was, quote unquote, no child support um, coming from my dad. I think, you know, now as a as a parent, I think it, he was just overwhelmed with the prospect of having a wife and kids. And so they divorced early on and he had to go work out his own stuff. But, you know, single mom. So my mother um, and my sister, it was the three musketeers forever. <laughs> and uh and so that just sort of compacted, like, you know, we're all in this together as yeah. the oldest child <laughs> and seeing how much my mom was struggling. I think at times, like, I just never pushed, like, I didn't push like my sister did. 
um, I was always pretty like, all right, what do I need to do? What's the next step? Like without fuss to navigate to the place that I want to go. And my mom did a great job of convincing me that she, uh, she was an idiot. I literally, like she had told me now, like her game plan was to feign uncertainty so that her daughters would start to have a voice. And mm. so from, oh, I, I don't remember where that park is. You're going to have to remember where this park is if you want to come here again, you know, to why don't you tell me the rules? Because I forget, you know, I'm trying to do too many things at once. And so <laughs> that's like, so interesting. Right. Yeah. So and she, she was, was doing this intentionally to yes. build up that skill in you all. OK. Yeah, she was. She um, and so like, again, that first teacher with my mother, um, like as much as the circumstances around me were crazy and chaotic. I don't know how many of your listeners have uh, ever lived in the back of a church. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like at one point I was. I remember being moved by a motorcycle gang in the middle of a snowstorm where like the door fell in. Cause it, yeah, just like, and then I slept on a shelf. Like it was just, people think you're making this up, but that was my childhood in the South. Like that's what it was. <laughs> where in the South did you grow up? Um, I grew up uh, kind of state to state. So like uh, Missouri, Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, and then back to Missouri. Um, so really, once I started school and my parents had had split, my mother was able to get into some government housing, low income housing and stabilize the situation for my sister and I. And she did that while working full time and going to college full time. So like when I was in elementary school, I'd occasionally get to go and sit in these uh, art classes. I remember the day they had the nudes because my mom turned around and I got that lap right in my face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I told a, one, a group of students earlier this year, like there was one point where the cars weren't working out. And I remember very distinctly riding on my mom's 10 speed on the handlebars while my sister was on the back, like wow. to do our little, like she dropped us off at the girls club and then she went to work or classes and she just made it happen. And I looked at that and was like, I have no interest in working that hard. <laughs> how, how far was she riding you all on the bike? Uh, she's 20 miles. Like oh, with you sitting on the handlebars? Yeah. Like total in the day was 20 miles. It was about two and a half to the girls club where she'd drop us off. Then she'd go over to the college and to her work and then yeah. loop back to pick us up. So Mother's and Day must be really meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, uh, she was in my house yesterday um, talking to my daughter and saying something. And she's like, your mom has worked so hard to get you to this point. And I was like, we both have like generativity, like this is generations um, that uh, to get sort of this stable from zero to five lots of turmoil, moving all the time, all over the South, mom and dad started school. Mom tried to just level everything out, you know, and she tried to do her best for my sister and I, um, like trying us, like got us into like a Catholic school for, you know, like one year. But of course, like I was going to a Catholic school with a uniform and somehow I was still getting picked on 
for not having the right clothes yeah. because of course everyone figured out that I was getting the hand-me-downs and blah, 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 you know, like, yeah, yeah. so it was, it was very clear that education was the path out. And it was, I, my childhood, like was just basically uh, a whole bunch of single moms with their kids in government housing. And the first like actually father I met um, that I remember is, um, his name was Hubert and he was uh, this absolutely uh, gorgeous soul uh, who was married to uh, one of my mom's friends. And he was this like six foot four, 300 pound black man. And he showed up. He was like the first real like father figure that I really remember. And that was probably right around seven or eight. Otherwise, like they were just people who drove by in cars, <laughs> you know, and I and and it was very much of a like as a as a white kid, like the focus was not at that point on race. I didn't become aware of race. I just thought like it was about being poor um, until I ended up in another girls club. And then I was the only one. My sister and I were the only white girls in the whole place. <laughs> okay, so I was going to ask you if you came up around folks of color, and in particular, you, you're saying the South, so I'm assuming um, black folks, African American, black folks, African American. Um, my first real uh, like playmate who I started to like explore sports with was a Native American. Um, and it was really cool because her name was Tommy and my name is Shane and we're like tough girls yeah. with yeah. boy names. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so trying to like just navigate those spaces um, and it, it just always felt like it was just seat of your pants. You know, what is great about the South is that it can snow for 15 minutes and then you're shoveling in a t-shirt because the weather turns around. It's so. And cool. where are we talking about now at seven, eight years old? Uh, by then I was in Springfield, Missouri. Okay. All right. You don't have a hint of a Southern accent. I had no clue. I thought you were a Northeasterner through and through. Uh, you know where it comes out is when I say, because I am a health teacher, yeah. vagina. It To me, I can hear the Virginia, like I can hear the Southern. Yeah. Hold on. Did you just say Virginia or vagina? I said vagina because I teach health. So we talk about parts. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, All right. I'm like, hold right. on. I'm confused. Are we talking right. about the state or the part? Okay. No, yeah. I literally like have to say it. Like I cue it before I talk about it in class. I'm like, we, we're going to go through anatomy and you're going to hear my accent come out and you never hear it otherwise, but there are like a few words and here they come. <laughs> Got you. Okay. Yeah. Not a hint. Okay. So some things are making sense to me now. Um, you know, that experience with you at prom where we were like doing our thing and shadow break dancing and you're throwing the ball up and bouncing it off your bum and all that. That I was like, what? Um, was there a lot of dancing in your household? And I'm not even going in the yeah. direction of like white people can't dance. I, I'm, I'm not so basic that I believe that. I, I <laughs> I think it's about environment ultimately. Right. Yeah. I think because it was just like the three musketeers all the time, like my uh with my mother, sister, and I, there was frequently like dance parties in the kitchen. In fact, like my sister has a sign in hers, like my kitchen's for dancing. Like so, like that very much was the case. So like I wasn't afraid to be like, yep, and just break yep. into a move. 
So my mother got remarried and eventually we moved to Exeter. And so by the time I got to Exeter and this whole idea of, of boarding school, like, you know, like from a far off distant land, people go <laughs> to these places and study. And since, you know, my night, I was going into eighth grade or eighth grade, I applied to Phillips Exeter because by then we were living in the town of Exeter and I did not get in. I didn't get in. And everybody from my like sort of friend group, like honors classes or whatever, they did get in. And at the end of that year, like not only did I not get in, I had this like moment with a French teacher who like picked up my desk and dropped it and said like, you're stupid. And, and it turns out like I was dyslexic and a second language, right? But at this point, we don't know this. She's seeing me only as a kid who maybe is a little lazy. Yeah. Um, so, just try harder. Yes, try harder. So, uh, you know, you're just a bad speller. Ninth grade year, I went to the local public high school, which was great, really great. In fact, a lot of the local high school uh, teachers also taught in the summer school at Phillips Exeter. So like the standard was high. Um, And so at that point, it was my mother, again, like all credit goes to my mom, uh, who was like, well, okay, if you want to do this boarding school thing, why don't we also apply to the one down the street, meaning Andover. And so I I applied to both schools. And I went down to Andover and over like a Christmas vacation. So there was nobody there. It was just like snow covered campus. And I did my interview and she's like, what'd you think? And I was like, fingers crossed. Like, I don't know. Um, And then I got in, but not only did I get in, I got in with a full ride and I like that. And I was like, I'm going like, it was like the legal way to run away. (laughs) Like literally that's how I thought about it. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny. I was going to ask you this question a few minutes ago but I was so captivated by what you were saying that I just kind of allowed you to continue. And what I was going to ask you was, where did your lucky break come in? Because oftentimes when I talk to folks who grew up poor or Mm -hmm. in working class families where the families had to work really hard to make ends meet, the working poor, we call them, um, always a lucky break at some point that allows you to get on a different path in life. And so I was going to ask that question, and it sounds like moving to the Northeast in proximity to these boarding schools was your lucky break. Would you agree with that or was it something else? No, I think I think that was it, Um, because when we were in Missouri, my mother uh, was all on her own. Like we had no relatives in the area. And so when I I know that, again, circumstances were uh, were that her father got sick. And so literally she got called back into the fold, you know, and so we moved up here on a Greyhound bus, <laughs> right? I, I was on a Greyhound bus for three days straight. Um, and uh, and so we arrived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and then we never left. Within, within a week, she and her sister went out to Missouri, packed everything up and brought it. And we live with my grandparents and that stability changed everything. It was actually a family member who was there. I was no longer a latchkey kid. Like I, it was, it was a completely different scene. And so, but from what I understand, that's like, that was what had happened 
for her parents as well. Like now I, I like can go back and see like, you know, unpacking the privilege from, it was the, you know, GI Bill, like serving in World War II, the GI Bill. One, one family member yeah. was able to get like a homestead. And then, I mean, we're talking Irish Catholics. So there, it's not just like one of them. There was like 12 and then yep. the next person had five. <laughs> and so what I understand now is that the grandparents for my mother, um, as well as for myself, like provided this stability for the parents that allowed all of a sudden, like their time opened up, right? That generativity of like, how can the multiple generations work together to leverage everyone up instead of it just being you're on your own with child care? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> can you talk a little bit more about the opportunities that the GI Bill afforded your family? Absolutely. And you mentioned privilege in the context of that. And I'm like, okay, that's quite the connection there. Um, well, thank yeah, you no, for moving in that direction. So No, it's really understanding, like, um, like I said, like, as a kid, all I saw was the struggle. As a kid, I was like, why can't I get that thing that I want? Like, you know, my eyes are really big um, with the wants. <laughs> so, um, but understanding it now, the, the reason that I am in as privileged a place as I am is that I can see that, you know, my great grandmother who was an indentured servant, that whole got on, put her on the boat when she was seven years old to come to the new country to, to, right? So she she did that. She worked in Boston for seven years for her family, which was amazing. Um, her husband uh, came over uh, a little bit older. So she was here like at seven. He came over at like 14 or 15. They met. Um, and then when they got together, uh, they like he was a mechanic and I guess like, so that made him like pretty affluent. Like he had a steady paycheck. And uh, so this was in Winchester, Mass is where, yeah. where they landed. So then, you know, throw in a war or two and a GI Bill and we got, there's a house and they had, they're the ones who had 12 children. My mother's mother was one of 12 and my mother's father was one of six. Yeah. Like it was just very much of that, that story of like, you know, that someone came before you and is trying to make it better. How, how can you get it better? How can you make it better? And so when we were in Missouri, we had none of that support. And when we came uh, East, all of a sudden there was money for me to go play on a soccer team. There was money for me to wear fun clothing or, uh, you know, my whole life wasn't built around layaway. Um, so, you know, it just that extra support. And I know that was meaningful for myself as well as for my mom, but really she saw it as like, Oh, well, this is what her parents had done for them. Yeah. Like, and so you just keep passing it down. Pivot back to Phillips Andover. All right. Now you got there, you're a student. What was it like as a first generation lower income student at okay. Phillips Andover? I am okay. So I was the again the white kid, and at that point, like there was the whole lending library, and it was pretty visible if you were on financial aid or not. And you know, my roommate who I got put with was this this young person who had a had a father who worked in the wing of the hospital named after him. 
And I just was like, oh my dear God, I have no, I have, like, I have no, nothing in common with you. Um, How did this person identify racially? Racially, uh, white, uh, again, another Irish Catholic, white yeah. Irish Catholic. She was from like the Carolinas, had a heavy accent, but it was just, she was just very different than me. So there was no like, to find my people, the people who I understood, who I had the language in common with. And so they generally were brown or black, which means I ended up like being in the Afro-Latino American society because why would I not go there and support all the people that I love? Like, (laughs) they're all there. I should go there. And, you know, and they were very tolerant of my little self stumbling around trying to figure stuff out. Um, but mostly it was that money thing. Like during the day in classes, it may not be easy to tell, tell who has it, and who doesn't. But the second you get back to the dorm and the food starts coming in and the packages and the, like it gets pretty visible pretty quick whose family has money and whose family doesn't, you know. And at that point, my um, my my grandmother on my father's side, because he basically dropped out of the picture, managed to do this miraculous thing for me, um, which was every once in a while, she dropped five bucks in the mail, like in a card. And this was a woman who I had, she had met me as a, as a you know, toddler, infant person one time. And then just magically at 14, she's like, oh, like she might need a little help. And then Every week, every two weeks, it was like this Easter egg showed up in five bucks. It added up quick yeah, and yeah. it was amazing. Like, so that really, you know, being in that situation, like, I mean, I, I definitely was walking around going, uh, well, on my vacations, I go home and work at McDonald's yeah. and you <laughs> like, and you go where you yeah. went, you go to the vineyard. Yeah. The vineyard? I don't. I don't even talk about, listen, I'm an adult, right? And I've learned very quickly here that I go on super basic vacations that I wasn't going on when I was growing up. Like I went to Little Beach, right? And that was cool. And that my family enjoyed it. And when I asked my advisees where they went, they went to parts of the world I didn't even know existed. Right. No, I I didn't get my passport punched until I turned uh, 40. I had given birth to two children and Uncle Phil said, okay, you can go drop these kids off in Ireland. Yeah. And that's when I. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. I, Thank you, Uncle Phil. I got to have pass. not been to Europe yet. I <laughs> hope to get there. I want to go to Africa. I want to go to a lot of parts of the world that my advisees and other students I've encountered yeah. here have uh, been to. Well, you've talked about a lot that kind of fits nicely into the narrative that most first-generation college graduates experience. So usually they come from lower-income backgrounds, and usually it's a struggle to make ends meet. How did you find your crew at Phillips Andover? I mean, I know you said you hung out with the Black and Brown kids. Were you aware by just looking that these students had lesser means. Were there other tells for you? Oh, it was the total, like you're, you're in a dorm meeting and someone says something and you can't help but roll your eyes and you catch the eye of the other kid whose eye is rolling and is like, are you kidding me? Um, (laughs) And then like, that's the moment. And that, 
uh, happened. I was very fortunate in my dorm um, to have a few souls that like, you know, stuff was said and we caught each other's eye and we're like, yeah, like these people are out of their minds. Like, <laughs> were, there, were there things you wish that, you know, instructors and administrators had done differently back then to make your experience easier? Like I think back to when I was in school in camps, like just anywhere, they weren't thinking about equity. And so the spirit of the question revolves around that. Like, were there misses that you wish weren't misses back then? It was extraordinary because, I, you know, this is where I give props to um, Andover and really having adults around me who saw me. Um, it was the coach who um, walked out on the court, handed me a racket and was like, hey, why don't you try this racket for me? And then at the end of practice comes up and is like, why don't you keep that racket? That looks like about the right one. And I'm like, are you, are you, are you giving me a, a racket? Like, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, like, and it was the pair of sneakers and it was just those adults. And I don't know, again, I don't know how much paperwork they had to do or what they had to fill out, but like that at Andover was so amazing. And then when I went to college and there was nobody, nobody, like nobody cares. Ah, so at Andover, <laughs> they were intuitive. Like yeah. you encountered a lot of adults who saw things and responded. Yes. Hey, Stella, before we get going, I just wanted to say, when you shared your story earlier about buying mugs for your mother um, when you travel, it, it resonated with me because I buy my mom magnets. Really? <laughs> yeah. So all the places I've traveled, starting from graduate school and to now, so my family and I just went to Quebec City, got her a, a magnet. Um, I would just send her home with something from that place and a little magnet. And so if you go to my mom's house, her fridge is covered in different magnets. And so I just think about your mom and her cupboard, you know? Yeah, so and I wish I had been doing the magnets because she ran out of space for the mugs. Um, yeah, they're literally spilling out of her cupboard. So yeah, no <laughs> more no more mugs. Maybe I'll start getting magnets. There you go. There you go. So what did you think of the conversation with Shane? Oh, so much. First of all, I really appreciate being able to relate to so much of her story. I would say that, you know, and I, I know Shane and um, but before listening to her story, I didn't realize how much I can connect with her and her struggles growing up, um, not having um, resources. Um, and I also connected with her mom being such a stabilizing person for her. And I think about my parents and all that they did to make sure that stabilization was experienced by the children. Um, So those are kind of the things that really uh, stood out for me listening to her story. What's the value of reflecting on one's journey, would you say? I think there's so much value add in reflecting your journey if for nothing else, to recount, to remember, you know, memory is formed and strengthened over time if we play with it, you know, if we if we think about it and we work it. So if for nothing else is to reflect and review, to remember, and so that you can retell in the future. So for me, someone who has become a parent in the recent years, I find myself reflecting in some re- in some ways so that I can tell my kids, 
you know, about my experiences. And the more I'm able to do that, the better we will all collectively remember these experiences. Um, really is really not to forget. Uh, I, I think I go back to what we talked about before is really taking things, uh, really appreciate things and not take things for granted. And that really comes with reflection. And I think with a heart of gratitude, of being thankful for some of those experiences because they have shaped who you become today. And would you say that going through struggles, um, going growing up with lesser means builds resilience? I think there's a critical piece that we have to add to that. So my quick answer is yes. You have to have some struggles to build resilience. But there's a, another piece to it, I believe. I believe you need someone to help you frame it. Mm. You know, you struggle, but not for nothing, right? And I think you, myself, sounds like from Shane, that while struggling, there were some adults helping to frame that and to give hope and to give some direction of, yes, you're struggling and look at where your path can be. Yes, you're struggling and look what you still what you still have better than others. I think that was the message I got from my dad a lot is that we don't have a lot, but we still have more than some. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so he really contextualized our money situation in a way that didn't make me feel poor. It made me feel um, aware, thankful, and hopeful. I never felt sorry for myself or his struggles. In fact, I felt proud, and I was proud of looking at my dad who, whose money situation shifted, right? From somebody who had had money in Taiwan and then come to the States and had nothing and how he was able to stay pr prideful through it all. That's impressive to me. Oh, absolutely. I think about that all the time with my parents who immigrated here, all the things that they probably experienced leaving their home country and coming here and having to find it in them to make it from day to day to find a job to establish roots somewhere. I certainly appreciate that journey. Um, and, and it's one that I reflect on more than they probably realize. Um, whenever I find myself getting bogged down with something, I'm like, my parents came here without much. If they could do it, I could find some reserve to do better or to keep pushing. So I'm thinking about parents right now, and I'm remembering from our conversation uh, when I interviewed you for the Immigrant in Me um, episode, you talked about a way that your father empowered you. I want you to share that story real quick. And I'm thinking about that because Shane also talked about a way in which her mom empowered her, um, which was to try to remember where she's going. I, I don't know what was going on in her mom's mind, but clearly it was really impactful and something that that really contributed to Shane's uh, development as a person. And so, yeah, please share that story that um, you told me about your father and yeah. how that shaped you in subsequent years. Yeah, and I'll give the short version of it. But, you know, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money in one way that we got extra cash was by recycling cans. Um, and so every weekend, you know, my, my dad would collect through the week. Um, he had access to some recyclables. And um, on the weekends, he and I will go and we'll recycle cans. And then the money that we got, um, 
he, he would take me with him to recycle. And then the money that we got, we would go to the store. We'll go to the grocery store and buy something special. And I got to pick, you know, yeah, like yeah. what was it that we were going to buy for the family? And I got to bring it home. And he always framed it as like, look what Sahoy bought us home today. Yeah. You know, like the extra fish or the sauce or something that my mom needed for cooking, whatever it was. Usually it's about food because we're at the grocery store and I love food. Um, but it was something fun. It was something special. I felt like I was praised at home for um but when I think about using my adult brain now, looking back, and I thought, I would think, wow, wouldn't I have felt embarrassed? Wouldn't I have felt some type of way about lugging these garbage bags filled with aluminum cans and popping them in one by one at this machine at the grocery store? Like, did I not? I would have, I don't know. I think I might be embarrassed to do it right now, Yeah, yeah. you know, for whatever reason, right? And I didn't feel an ounce of that with my dad. And I, th- I think it was his way of saying that this is what this, there's no shame in this and that there can be joy in doing this. And that by doing something like this, we're also giving back to the family and it could be something special. And I just thought those messages were so subtle. I didn't even pick it up in the moment, but upon reflection, I see what he was trying to do. And speaking of reflection, at what point does it become a detriment to think about your past? Yeah, I think there is a difference between reflecting and ruminating. Okay. So what's the purpose? What's the goal? If you're reflecting so that you can better remember, so you can gain some perspective, so that you can better tell your story, there's a goal in that, right? If you're reflecting because you're reminiscing, you're earning for, you're longing for someone that's trying to connect, Right. What is the purpose of this thought exercise? Or is it purely rumination, which means there's really no purpose, no goal. You're just spinning in it. You're just spinning. And when do you find that people get stuck in that cycle of reflecting mm -hmm. versus ruminating? When they think that is productive. Mm. They think, well, if I think about it long enough, something will happen. Well, what will happen? Nothing unless you make it happen. Right. Um, And our brain doesn't know the difference. So this is actually an interesting um, fun fact. Our brain doesn't know the difference between thinking and ruminating. It just feels productive all the time, right? So you might have worked with a student that is trying to think about how to write a particular paper and they're thinking about, well, how am I going to write this? How am I going to write this? Well, you know, it's now the night before the paper is due and they're still thinking about how to write it. Yep. It's not doing anything. They might feel like they're being productive. They're not. The page is blank. So at some point, you have to shift them into action. So not rumination, but action. Got it. Okay. So thought to action, healthy. Thought to inaction, unhealthy. Yep. That's why I have the expert on the podcast. Shizzle. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be remiss not to revisit what Shane mentioned about privilege in our conversation, especially in the context of the GI Bill, which was written into law in 1944 as the Servicemen's Readjustment Act after World War II. It provided a wide range of benefits to veterans returning home from the war. The benefits range from grants to pay for college, low interest mortgage loans, small business loans, unemployment benefits, and more. Even though the GI Bill was enacted at the federal level, States were given the right to disburse benefits as they saw fit. 
which resulted in African-Americans getting the shaft in many parts of the country when they sought to cash their promissory note. Over 40 years after the GI Bill was passed, Shane reaped the benefits of it because her grandfather had access to the program, which played a pivotal role in helping her rise out of poverty. I appreciate Shane's recognition of that advantage and her willingness to share that in her story. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity in me. Identity in me.